0: This is Brian McManus, Denver Broncos Super Bowl champion, and you listen to The Scoop on alscoop.com.
1: everybody. Welcome back to The Scoop, alscoop.com's podcast. I'm John DiCarlo, joined by Sam Cohn, Sam Newman, and a special guest with us. This week, Varun Kumar. So excited to to bring him into this week's episode because Varun is just one of the most fascinating human beings I know. I've told him that before. Um, we he's here to talk talk some hoops with us. Uh, we're going to talk about a couple of the stories he's done. Yeah, he's been part of the the series that we've been doing and the Remembering John Cheney series. Varun talked to Mark Tyndale. A lot of you, any of you who are Temple fans, know. Uh, he's been one of the better program, uh, better players in the program's history is now an assistant coach with the Toronto Raptors and Varun recently spoke to Ron Rollerson, former big man who was on, um, the 2000 team. Was he on the 2001 team? Varun? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. anyway, introducing Varun to the podcast here, um, Sam and Sam, you're meeting him virtually for the first time. I want to, I want to tell this story about Varun and he's heard me say this before. So, Varun, how how old are you now? Uh,
2: twenty six now. It
1: took twenty six now. So Varun is a Pitt graduate, never went to Temple, and so I don't. How long have we known each other now? Seven, eight years, something like that, maybe longer. So, uh, seven years probably sounds uh sounds right. I think probably so when, I was- I, when I got
2: to Pitt, I think was when I started. Uh, I think we started talking. I think.
1: So I, I I say Varun and and I know like a lot of a lot of our mutual friends share this share the same opinion of Varun, and I call him one of the one of the world's like most fascinating people because I remember like Varun would would start chiming in on tweets, and I was like, who is this guy? And I thought I was being trolled because he's younger, but Varun is just like this Philly basketball like historian, and he you know would say, yeah, isn't that the game where? mike Vrieswick did this or i don't know if he would go that far back but they're like yeah that's the game where david hawkins did this and i'd be like how old were you and he would just play along and then we finally got the chance to meet so Varun, before we we get into the the you know um all the the you know the the rest of the podcast tell our listeners about like how you got hooked on particularly temple hoops i mean you've got a good grip on um you know, the big five and, and college hoops in general, you've, you've written for us, you've written for city basketball love, and uh, you've covered the sport before, but tell us about how you just gained an appreciation for this sport and particularly like the history of it for someone who you like, you have memory recall on games that you never watched, but you just know the stats and you know, the stuff, just kind of fill people in on why you got hooked on temple hoops.
2: Well, I would say that my, the way I got hooked was 2001. Um, the, last elite eight run for temple and also with basketball it was the year the Sixers made the final. So it was like really good time in, in, uh, in Philly hoops. And my dad was a temple grad. That's how I, you know, my, um, my uncle taught there and a lot of my extended family went there. So it was um, that was my intro into temple and it was a good time for basketball and all kind of just came together with that 2001 elite eight run. And I remember it was even the quarterfinals against Dayton was like the first game I think that I was like I really want to watch this game right and you know they'd come into that tournament um struggling you know not struck you know they've been playing better during the A-10 run but um they really needed that uh to win the conference tournament to to get into the NCAAs and and that that three-day stretch um Thursday the quarterfinals against Dayton Friday of course that game against GW when uh linger gets fouled and hits those free throws and then the title game against umass and like that was for me like i had been watching with my dad um whenever he would he would watch before or you know um any of those uh you know when you're little but that was that was the run that really got me into it at that i was six years old i
1: think at the time Mm -hmm. so six-year-old brun kumar hooked on on Temple basketball. And you know, Kyle and I will, will tease Varun and our you know, our buddies, Andrew Albert, Teddy Bailey, that whole crew, and Ari, like they they all know you as well. Like, what was it a few years ago? Kyle and I were recovering a I think a temple LaSalle game at the palestra, and it's post-game, and we're kind of like walking into the media room and someone taps us on the shoulder and we turn around. It's Varun. And it was like a midweek game against LaSalle. And Kyle's like, I love you, buddy, but what are you doing here? What are you doing here? You're at pit. He's like, I just had to come home and and, and see this game. And we we're like, the, the dedication is 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 incredible. So we're happy to have him on with us. Again, um, you know, we want to recap more of you know just John Cheney's legacy. Um, before we talk about the Ron Rollerson story, you know, before we started recording. Um, obviously I think anybody who's listening to this podcast, probably, you know, either might've been in attendance or had a chance to stop by and, and pay their respects to John Cheney or watched the service online. It was beautifully done. And again, um, you know, in case you, you didn't get the chance to see, it, I would highly recommend going back and watching it. Um, Sam and Sam, your, your impressions of it. I mean, Sam Cohen, before we started recording, you were talking about just the impact it had on you, not only just, you know, watching it, but just. Just being there in person. Again, I know um all three of you never got to cover the man, but it's clear that again, he's had this ripple effect and and an effect on people who've, you know, learned about him or or interviewed people about him. What were your impressions of the, you know, of the service that they had for him?
3: Um, I so I did get a chance to go to the the public viewing earlier in the day. Um, and that wasn't anything crazy to the sense that like it's not a lot around people, you're not around a lot of people, obviously, because of COVID. And it wasn't any sort of you know, speaking or music or anything like that as the private one was. Um, but I I will definitely say it was it was a heavy moment for me to be able to I'd gone with uh with Ray, uh friend of the pod. I had been able to go inside, you know, walk down the stairs six, six feet apart from everyone. Um Jay Wright was right behind us. Like there were there were a decent amount of people there uh that were just kind of going through and then they, you know, there's barriers about where to stay, where to walk, walk on the carpet, and then to be able to walk up to the casket and kind of have that moment to pay my respects. Even though I, you know, I'd mentioned on the podcast last week that I had talked to John Cheney once in my life over the phone. I had seen him in my life once before at uh, Aaron McKee's um, introductory press conference. John Cheney wasn't exactly the person to me that I know that he was to a lot of people, but like, as you had mentioned, that ripple effect of the what he what he means to temple basketball what he means to temple community what he means to college basketball and to the philadelphia community as a whole is is unbelievable and even just hearing all these stories i think that definitely had a put me into a different perspective going into that moment of being there for an open casket public viewing of john cheney was was a really heavy moment for me but i think it was something i um you know I, i was glad i was able to go pay my respects and then you know i come home and i was watching this stream for, for what was it, like two or three hours, was there were a lot of really awesome stories. I think you are probably, you know, we'll get into the, the notable ones of Mark Jackson and Mike Frieswick and, and hearing Aaron McKee and like in a more vulnerable space, I think, talking about – like Aaron McKee talking in a press conference or Fran Dunphy talking at a press conference the day of and the day after. John Cheney's passing is you're going to get what you're going to get. They're going to say um, – they might tell stories, that, but they're not going to get that deep. And having – like hearing Aaron McKee be really vulnerable in a private viewing – Um, after John, I think that was the first time I really heard Aaron McKee be vulnerable at all. And I, I, he, I thought he was, I thought he was one of the more underrated speakers. I thought he he spoke very well. Um, and he had some great stuff to say, and it it was just cool to hear people kind of be in that moment and tell like really interesting stories and, and have that, like, you know, you're telling me I got two minutes, I'm going to be here for a while. I thought the guy leading it, the, the, the pastor did a phenomenal job. I thought, you know, all in all, I thought it was really, really well done.
0: Yeah, obviously, um, you know, Sam had the chance to go. I didn't. I was in class for four hours, Philly uh, neighborhoods, um, my capstone. But, anyways, I I had a chance uh, to catch really some good. of it. Sam pulling out the program, um, yeah. But you know, I had a chance to watch John Calipari speak actually, and um, he was talking about how he wanted um, John Chaney to be there at his Hall of Fame speech, and um, and John Chaney was basically like, "Don't ever let them like." they're going to cue you to come off, but don't let them take that away from you. Like speak as long as you want that sort of thing. I thought that was pretty great. Um, And then just him saying, I mean, the story I obviously when it was first announced that Cheney had passed away, that one clip kept coming up of Cheney telling uh, Calipari that it would kill him. And obviously I think it's great that, you know, they became friends after that very close and, you know, Calipari was kidding about it, but he honestly said he sat there and I think the first time he's like, yeah, he would have kicked my ass. And I thought that was just kind of great. Um, played well on Twitter for sure. Um, but uh, it was just one of those things where it's like, wow. Like, I mean, even when people have their differences, like Cheney behind the scenes was like with Cal Perry, they were able to reconcile and have a great relationship. And he kind of finished that off was, was saying like, Hey, I miss my friend, like, you know, that I mean, that, that was pretty impactful. I, obviously, I can't speak to being there in person, but from the glimpses that, you know, you got to see from even a guy that he, he feuded with for, you know, a period of time, that that was great. Uh, I saw some of the other speeches that we'll speak about, but only, you know, bits and pieces of it. So I'll let you guys kind of talk about that.
1: Well, I want to, you know, talk about Varun's Ron Rollerson piece here. And again, uh, I would definitely, if you haven't already, head to alscoop.com, check out the content. Again, as, uh, as we've mentioned you know, um, you know uh, we've talked to all sorts of people, Dustin Salisbury, Chris Clark, Jason Ivey, uh, check out Varun's piece on Mark Tyndale, did a great job with that. Tom McNudo talked to Mark Macon. We've talked to Sam Newman, talked to Nate Blackwell. Uh, again, I mean, we could probably, you know, tell these stories on and on and on for the next several years. You know, you, you heard us, um, you know, I got the chance to talk to Marty Collins last week. Um, you know, I'm not just saying this because Varun's on the on the podcast with us this week. But one of my favorite pieces was the one that he just completed for us, and we have it on the site today. And it's about Ron Rollerson, uh, You know, big man, six eleven. You know, one of the one of the biggest guys to ever come through the program from in New Jersey. And you know, statistically speaking, you know Ron's stats won't compare with Kevin Lye, with Lamont Barnes, with with Mark Jackson, with Tim Perry, Ramon Rivas, Lavoy Allen, all the the greats, but he had a role in this program, was on that 2000 team, 2001 team. And, um, you know, and if you've read anything about him, Mike Jensen did a great piece on him a couple of years back. And if you read Varun's piece, did a terrific job. You know, Ron's had some, some health issues and had um, either, what, part of his leg or his whole leg amputated Varun? Uh, it was one whole leg and I think uh, a, t- a couple
2: – a toe or a couple toes on, on the other. So, you know, some really, uh, really major, major stuff.
1: Yeah. And he, and he's played, you know, he played uh, with the Harlem Globetrotters and just a great, a great personality and was a fan favorite just because of like how big he was, but in Varun's story here. And again, it kind of follows the format of, you know, the other ones we've done and there's some great writing here and then some excerpts. Um, One of the clips that we want to play for all of you from Varun's interview with with Ron was, and again, you know, other people have um, talked about John Cheney's impact when it's come to racial and social injustices. We know how outspoken he was um, when it came time to uh, talking about Prop 48 between him and, and John Thompson, talking about it and others. Um, there's some great stuff in here that Varun got from Ron, where he talks about how John Cheney checked in on him when he was in uh, when he was in the hospital, but the the clip that we want to play for you here, and you know, Varun texted me a few days ago and said I got some great stuff from him. What, what really struck me was, you know, Ron talking about, um, you know, how these guys now didn't see some of the, and again, I'm paraphrasing here, and I'll turn this over to Varun in a second. These guys didn't encounter some of the things that 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 John Cheney um, had to encounter like during the Jim Crow era. And it was just a really profound piece of, of the interview here Vroom, You kind of want to introduce this clip and then we'll play it for the play for the listeners here and kind of react to it on the other side. What, what struck you about this piece of the interview when this came up? Sure. Um, I, I, uh,
2: was going to say, um, I asked him about his legacy, uh, what it had been. And, um, Ron really, he, he went right away into this uh, Jim Crow stuff Is he started off saying like, you know, he just wanted to be, he always, Cheney always said that he always wanted to be someone uh, who would be remembered as someone who, who cared. Um, and then kind of going into perspective, it was because he came up during the Jim Crow era um, where, you know, in Florida, you know, there was over at least reported 300 lynchings. And, you know, um, uh, Mike Kern did a piece in the athletic when, you uh, what, a couple of years ago and Cheney mentioned that he had uh his mom had asked him to hide under a bed because the clan the had been nearby and was doing a cross burning and you know all this really 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 dark stuff the the ugliest sides of american history um and he you know was not afforded a lot of opportunity uh simply you know by the color of his skin when he was born where he was born um and he really like it shaped the way he lived his life for 89 years
1: from, from
2: literally when he was born.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this clip we're going to play here is again, just talking about, you know, Ron's appreciation of, of that. And, you know um, just as Rune said, how it shaped him and, and how, you know, and how, you know, Ron, I think, and you reflected this beautifully in the story room where like he still found it in his heart to take a look at the whole picture and, and take a look at some of these, these guys from across all walks of life who helped him out. Sam Brown, Harry Litwack, Purely Lee, Acorus, Jim Maloney, um, you know, and this is, this is a big part of, of, of John Cheney's legacy, the, the grand scheme of things, looking at things. And again, you know, other people have talked about this, but you know, to hear Ron Roll- Rollers and talking about it years later and how he remembers that piece of John Cheney's life was some really good stuff. So we're going to play this clip for you here, let you listen to this. Again, this is from Varun's conversation with Ron Rolverson, and we'll react to this on the other side. I
4: think his legacy will be exactly what he wanted it to be, although if you talk to him, he probably never felt that he made as much of an impact as he did. But Coach would often say he just wanted to be remembered as somebody who cared. And I think more than anything, that's what he'll be remembered for—somebody who cared. You know, and everything is, is everything is, is is put into perspective. He, he came up in a time during the Jim Crow
3: era where, as a black man, he was told things you couldn't do. So, for him, having the ability to take kids from the inner city and giving them a free education. Was an opportunity,
4: an opportunity to do better for themselves and their family. Was like it meant so much more to him than it did for us because we were not denied some of the things that he was denied. So he took a lot of pride in knowing that he was giving people the opportunity to get a free education, something that so many people from his time, coming up probably in the south um were were not were not exposed to. Him. So I think his legacy will be remembered as as, as someone who cared. He cared about his players. I mean that but he was definitely a whole lot more than that. You have to, you have to take it into perspective but his eyes witnessed He was born in January of 1932. Mm -hmm. He moved up here at 14. So, what he he saw coming up, he had more than every reason to, to let race dictate who he was. But if you talk to him, the most influential people in his life were people that or a lot of people that did not resemble him—his high school coach Harry Lipwack, Mr. Leah Corrs, Jim Maloney—four people who probably had some of the most influence in his life were were resembled people that wanted to kill him at one time. Right. The average person doesn't forget that nor do they forgive. So for him to, in his 89 years, and to have that kind of humility is something that's rare because, like I said, those individuals I've named, he often, always glorified, even going back to his Hall of Fame and Shining speech, those were people who meant so much and inspired him. Like, he took pride in knowing what Harry Lippwack stood for, who started everything, basically. Mm-hmm. And then Mr. Leah Goris took a chance on him. thought that that be the president, you know, and, and, you know, his high school coaches were so influential, and everybody knows in some community that Jim Maloney was his shadow. So he, so he passed away here. So these were people that meant so much to him, and he had every reason to never want to give his heart to other races based on probably what he saw and experienced growing up. And it probably wasn't much better in South Philadelphia in
1: 1950 either. Right. So obviously a a really powerful clip there. Again, Varun did a great job with the story. Varun, you were obviously there talking to Ron. You, you, you heard the quote, uh, heard that clip, Sam and Sam, when you, when you hear that, again, some really powerful stuff there, some great perspective. What what was your thought on just hearing that clip?
3: I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is like i I hate to make comparisons, but like comparing what Ron rollerson talked about in terms of John Cheney's legacy compared to. Um, the perspective that we've heard a lot of other people take. And I think just from talking to a lot of other people, like the, pers- the, the initial perspective a lot of people take is like what he was able to do. And this is not a bad thing. It's not a slight at all. It's what they were able to do for them, their families and their teammates and the guys around them, and what they were able to witness for the legacy that he passed on. But to hear Ron Rollerson take a very different approach in terms of like what his legacy is based on who John Cheney was and what he went through. I think he word he, this was an exceptional answer. Um, the, the line that really stood out to me was the, the idea of like, he, as Veruna mentioned, talked about, you know, the darkest days in American history, John Cheney lived through them and he, and the, the humility that he was able to show and the strength that he was able to show. And he had no reason to be that good of a human being because of what he witnessed and because he, because of what he grew up through, but for him to be that strong and for him to have be such an influential person. For so many young basketball players and so many people, uh, especially in the Philadelphia era, I thought was phenomenal. And the line that stood out to me was when he said that um, the most influential people in his life were a lot of people that did not resemble him. His high school coach Sam Brown, Harry Litwack, who was um, coach before John Chaney, Peter chorus Jim Maloney four people who probably had some of the most influence in his life resembled people that wanted to kill him at one time. I thought that was such a powerful line thinking about like, he had every right to hate them just because he knew what white people, how, how white people at that time felt about black people. He had every right to have that in his heart and to have that hate in his heart. But those people took a chance on him and he was able to be that he, he he showed so much strength and he you know having those people I think is just a really interesting perspective to look at it for like what his legacy means um, down the line after his passing I thought that was just so phenomenally said
0: well Sam really said it best there and I don't really know how I can you know back that one up but I just going what off he said is you know obviously this has been a said it a lot to us but the one thing I mean, that kind of pierced me a ton of things did, but he, I mean, when he said, you know, the one thing about John Cheney is he cared and that's what everybody said. But Rollerson went beyond that to show that, you know, he didn't really have a reason to care, but he did. And he had in his heart of hearts to make the world a better place for a lot of people, Ron Rollerson included. And I thought, you know, the way that he went with that. Wasn't really expecting Ron Rowlandson's answer to to be as extensive as it was and to go in the Chinese background and and kind of point out that for his reasonings and, you know, the fact that he doesn't need to, you know, just with everything he was saying. So I I thought it was very impactful. Um, His his answer was was great. I think it's one of, like John said, it's, you know, a little biased, but, you know, I I thought it was one of the best pieces for sure. And I know that, you know, from talking to guys that I have, I wasn't able to get some of those answers and what they gave me was still pretty good. But hearing, hearing that was just, I mean, it, it just elevates chaining to a whole nother level that we already thought he was on.
1: Yeah. And again, when Varun, uh, I think he texted me after he talked to him, he said, I got some really good stuff and I, I, that's just really, really powerful stuff. And it's a perspective that, you know, I think we've all thought about and maybe some other people have written about it, but when you hear it, you know, it really is great, and and Varun, you got some other great stuff from, uh, from Ron. And again, I would encourage you guys to to read this story and all the stuff we've got on the site. Um, you know, Ron talked about when he was in the hospital in 2016 when he was going through that really tough time, having surgeries, and and John Cheney was trying to reach him. And Varun, he said, what the first thing he he gave him crap for was not having his phone on. Right? He can't, didn't he say like you didn't have your answering machine on? Yeah, that was uh, that was the first thing. he Just
2: good old coach like uh busting on him just uh like nothing was wrong and then immediately goes into like being super concerned about what's going on but he didn't pass up a teaching moment at at any point
1: yeah so again great stuff there from a big thank you to, to to ron rollerson for um again just chiming in on our coverage big thank you to Varun for doing that story again check out his story the the mark tindale stuff um all the stuff we've been doing again um you know again, we could probably talk to people for, as I said, years on, on end about John Cheney and his legacy. Um, but again, um, happy to to provide some of this coverage for you guys. And again, a big thank you to Ron for, for talking to us and um stay tuned to the site. You know, we'll try to reach out to more people in the coming days. Uh do want to talk about the current edition of the Owls and uh the scheduling uh switch ups that have taken place. So this the the home and home with with ECU is no more um, due to, again, the wonderful world of, of COVID and, um, you know, COVID protocols um, and stuff going on with the ECU program. So instead, Temple will now be playing Cincinnati. Uh, you'll be listening to this on, you know, Friday morning. So Temple will be playing Cincinnati tonight, um, trying to get some revenge against, uh, against the Bearcats. And, you know, again, Temple's just, you know, hoping to, try to string a couple of wins together at some point and, and continuing to show some progress with a, you know, with a a young roster here and some different pieces, Um, you know, Temple didn't get them the first time around. They're hoping to get them the second time around. It's a, you know, a five and seven Cincinnati team. That's kind of rebuilding in its own. Right. Um, Sam Cohn, I'll kick it over to you. Um, You know, what, what, you know, what could Temple do differently? Can they win this game now? Again, it's, you know, we know it's, an interesting world for these guys to live in. This isn't the first time where they've had to pivot on their schedule. They're game planning for ECU, an ECU team that that somehow beat Houston and upset Houston. So you're you're dedicating all your energy into to looking at ECU. You shift, so now you're preparing for a Cincy team that you saw not long ago. What could they do differently? What should they do differently this time around? And and do you think they could you know uh, beat them this time around?
3: Um, I want to preface my answer by saying I did ask Aaron McKee a couple weeks ago about like what's it like with all these schedule changes going into a situation like the one we have this week about, you know, you have ECU coming up and the day before the game, they get postponed or they, the game gets postponed because the opposing team has to go through COVID protocol or whoever has to go through COVID protocol, uh, your schedule changes, you have to then prepare for another team. What's that like? And he gave an answer along the lines of um, uh, it becomes less about the other team it becomes more about like, what do you need to do internally? to win basketball games? What do you need to work on internally to fix things up and clean things up? The good thing for Temple is that they've played Cincinnati within the last week. So they kind of know what they're getting themselves into uh, this time coming on the road. And the easy answer for what they need to differently is not turn the ball over. Because if they don't turn the ball over 19 times against Cincinnati, uh, what was it, a week ago today? Something like that. Um, they win that game, plain and simple. They win that game. Uh, they Their last two games, they've come down to late game scenarios that they haven't been able to finish. Uh, Caleb battle, missed a game winner, um, had a, had a turnover and then missed a game winner. in the first time against Cincinnati, Wichita state, similar situation, but I will say it was cleaned up a little bit. Uh, they did get a better look at the hoop with Caleb battle at the end. I don't totally fault Caleb battle for either of these losses. Obviously there's a lot more that goes into it. He just happened to be the guy with the ball in his hands in the final seconds. But I think, you know, plain and simple, they need to play as close to the way they played the first time around against Cincinnati, except then you just need to clean up the turnovers. If they don't have those wasted possessions, like the possessions they had that they were able, they were able to get a lot of good looks at the hoop. They were able to really hang with Cincinnati um, defensively, but if they don't turn the ball over, that's a whole different game. And their they're, Cincinnati was taking, at one point, like midway through the first quarter, uh, Cincinnati had taken twice as many shots as temple and i'm going to start sounding like sounding like john chaney right now that they can't have wasted possessions if they're going to win games if they don't get as many shots as the other team they're not going to win games so that's going to be the huge difference maker is like can they keep up that defensive effort and can they maintain some kind of ball security to get those looks because when their offense is flowing and their offense is working they can start to find a rhythm of knocking down shots but if they're not even getting the shots they stand no chance
0: yeah, just to piggyback on what Sam was saying, um, I think obviously there was a lot of unforced turnovers and, and something that you know they can definitely improve upon. But they just have to shoot the ball at a better clip. Damian Dunn has been, you know, done a great job of getting to the line, but he hasn't been shooting the ball that well from the field. Neither has Caleb Battle, who's really struggled from shooting wise. Um, Temple just needs to go back to what's working, and it's you know getting Jake Forster. Um, involved in the offensive end, the spacing, passing wise. I think Jeremiah Williams has been very good at, and, and Damian Dunn, even Brennan Berry, who has not, you know, particularly done well from the stat box, but obviously, you know, there's things that they need to be improving, but I think they've all passed a ball while well at, at, at a reasonable clip. Um, getting Jake Forster involved in offense definitely helped early Cincinnati. I believe Sam, if I'm wrong, I believe Jake did get in foul trouble against Cincy, didn't he? Or, or is that a, if I
3: remember correctly, Cincy he did not get in foul trouble, and which Wichita State he did.
0: Okay, if I remember correctly, here a little bit, but um, yeah, obviously that's a key. Jake staying out of foul trouble, um, and then on defense they just you know, it's a for. I mean, the keys for Temple in in them winning defensively is is playing like they have been and, and limiting teams to what like under seventy points, and that, that that's really when they've been able to. But also winning on the glass, I, they did that against. And most of the games they've won this year is because they've won on the glass, and when they have lost, it's because they've been down. And it's as simple as it sounds. That's kind of the recipe for for Temple's win wins and losses this year.
3: Sam, I was wrong. He had four fouls with more than fifteen minutes left in the game, so it was Cincinnati that
0: he. Didn't okay, that I remember. Just dude.
3: yeah, yeah, but just to that point, like if he's not staying on the floor, they're gonna get demolished inside, and they have to they have to find a way to keep them. And on that the yeah, end.
0: that goes to the point on on the boards too. They need to win the battle on the boards and. I mean we can sit say that beat beat the dead horse over and over again and as simple as it is, it's like Jake Forrester is very key to how they're going to play against Cincinnati because they they kind of fell apart down the stretch. And, I mean, they have – since he has, what, that seven-footer guy, Chris Vote who can definitely expose Temple down low if Forrester gets in foul trouble. so uh, He just I, does a
3: lot. He just does a lot for their spacing offensively. Like, J.P. and Dre aren't playing back to the basket, playing in the interior, playing inside. If Jake can just be on the floor – in the in the interior and draw some kind of attention
0: exactly. they're going
3: to be able to get passes through they're going to be able to draw guys in defensively and kick things out they're going to be the ball the ball's going to move a lot cleaner and that's going to lead to better offense yeah situations.
0: and without but without jake on the floor you're asking a lot out of jp and dre which is Boom. exactly it, it doesn't seem like the team has enough faith in Arashma parks or, or nick Jordan at this point in, in their co- respective careers to get the job done against of
3: at least, experience. at least notable that we've seen more Nick Jordan than we have in the last couple weeks. I mean, Wichita State, he got his first jump shot beyond six feet. Like he was able to knock something down. I mean, we've seen yeah, him after every I mean, single game getting shots up. He finally was able to get a look, get a look, get a clean look at the hoop. He got you now six, seven, eight minutes.
0: Aaron had a solid answer on him, and he said he doesn't want to put him in, in matchups that he doesn't think like he's going to win. So I guess that depends on whether we'll see him against Cincy or not.
1: Rune, uh, although I mean you haven't been on the you haven't been on the beat like Sam and Sam have, you, you're familiar with the program. You, you've been watching. Um, what have you seen just from afar with the what Aaron's done in year two, the roster overhaul, changing the roster, bringing him some new pieces? Obviously, they're they're not going to be unless there's some sort of dramatic turnaround, they're not going to be an NCAA tournament team this year. But do you think they're headed in the right direction from what you've seen with just some of the different players and the pieces that we're talking about here? Um, Yeah, I think, you know, it's definitely Aaron, what he talked about, um, you know, in the
2: first couple of months about how he envisions where this program is going to be with, you know, having multiple guys on the floor that can put, you know, put the ball on the deck and play fast and, you know, be long and, you know, playing, you know, three, four guards and and going with a lot of this smaller, faster lineup uh, that's like, you know, quote unquote modern basketball um, with the way a lot of a lot of programs are doing, not the traditional, you know, dump it to the post. Um, bigs and you know maybe even more traditional John Chaney offense it's you know it's not the way Aaron's going to play um, so you know Jeremiah Williams has been a you know, really nice bright spot for, for them and um, you know I definitely think they have you know pieces there that can, uh, can contend and you know it's been really tough with COVID when you work in a lot of new pieces that's why like a lot of the, the teams that are freshman heavy have been struggling and you know I, I really to me wouldn't take away that much from anyone's win-loss record this year across the country unless they you know had like five seniors back
1: yeah so we we've got um a few mailbag questions to get to basketball related Rune I I would uh, tend to agree with you I think sometimes when you uh before we get to the mailbag one of the things that you said is you know when you say this to fans sometimes they they call you a homer or they say you're being too kind but I'd say this for college football say it for college basketball now obviously a lot of good players out there but You know, when you look at some of the records this year and you look at some of the circumstances, it's just it's just been obviously unlike anything we've ever seen. And I think if you're a temple fan and if, of course, if you're the players and the coaches, you want to see signs of progress. You want to see wins. Um, you want to see them bounce back. You saw some signs of progress against Wichita state, but you know, they fell three points short there. They looked better. It wasn't good enough. Uh, I'll be interested to see what he does with the roster moving forward, how some of these guys progress, but I agree with you. A lot of, you look at a lot of records nationally and you think what, I mean, even just looking at the talent that Kentucky has on its team, And for them to be struggling, relatively speaking, like they have to see Duke and Carolina unranked. It's been obviously a a weird year. We do have some mailbag questions to to get into here, uh, all basketball related. These are from our our message board. I think we got one on Twitter as well. Uh, First one comes from TU1834 from the message board. Any names to look out for in the transfer market yet for that last scholarship? So again, just to recap, Brandon Sanders uh, doesn't appear likely to head to Temple, although he'd verbally committed. Um, I would think that, as the question suggests here, that um, you know that they might be looking for a grad transfer. I mean, if I'm Aaron, which I'm obviously not, um, if you look at what Houston's been able to do, some other programs have been able to do. You've got Sage Tolbert on your bench. You know, will he play this year? Probably not. But you know, you look at what he could potentially add. Yeah, they probably want to add another big, but we'll see who comes back. We'll see, you know, does do Dre Perry and JP Mormon decide to come back for like that extra year of eligibility that they're getting? Uh, You know, you have to look at the scholarship numbers and see how things play out. Um, I don't know. I don't know if there's if it's like a guy like, you know, again, and this is all purely, purely speculation. I, I think they're probably looking around, putting feelers out for any sort of big who could make an impact. I know that people are intrigued about Tosh Tweet down at West Virginia. Now he's not a back to the basket big. He's barely playing uh at all for a very good West Virginia team. So, um you know, I think that they, you know, if he decided that he wanted to come home, I think the Temple might can take might consider taking him if there were like two extra available spots there. But you know, I think that they would look for I think that they would have uh, more interest in just getting, whether it's a shot block or any sort of um, impact big uh, of Ruin, You want to chime in on this one?
2: Yeah. I mean, I just think like with Jake Forrester, I think he's shown um, a lot of growth this year and he's been really good the last two years at um, getting to the free throw line. You know, if he can get to ooh, I don't know, 65% from the line and then, you know, kind of get the defense down solid um, with, you know, just, with um, knowing the assignments and everything, you know, Jake could be a really good switchy big. He's got, he's got the athleticism. Um, You know, I, I think hit, you know, if they get a, a uh, another big, uh, that's a grad transfer, Sage and Jake, like that, you know, that looks pretty good.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think they're going to add a big, it's, it'll probably be a, the mold of Sage Tolbert. I mean, we've heard, you know, that term junkyard dog and to get to the mold of what since he has been in the past and what Houston is, I think they need to get, uh, what would probably be looking for somebody of that mold and less like, you know, a seven foot big, but from, I mean, I just don't, we just don't know at this point, there's so much turnover that can happen between now and then and temple has no idea whether JP Mormon or Dre Perry, or even, you know, the future of some of their own players. So, um, you know, but if I had if I was a betting man, guessing man, I, I I would say somebody more of the mold of of the player that we've heard that Sage Tolbert can be for sure.
3: I'll add one thing really, just really quickly. I think that I agree with Sam. I think you're gonna bring in a guy to the similar mold of Sage Tolbert. Um, what happens with the rational parks down the line, only time will tell. But I think that Nick Jordan is a lot more similar to Jake Forrester than I may than I might have predicted six months ago, uh, seven months ago, whenever he um, whenever he first chose to come to Temple. Um, his game style, like when I first heard about him, when I first talked to him, I, I anticipated someone that was going to play more on the wing, a guy that was going to play more. Than, I, I Honestly, I pictured a Dre Perry. I pictured a different build in a guy like Dre Perry that doesn't necessarily have a jump shot yet, but like envisions playing that role. He is not that at all. His game in high school was strictly limited to – within the restricted area. And we talked about when he went to um, uh, something covenant prep and I'm blank on the name, uh, doesn't matter. When he took a prep year, he expanded his game a little bit. And it's a similar progression that we saw with Jake Forrester with them wanting him to be able to take like a 12 footer, 10 footer, just to be able to kind of turn and face the basket and pull up. And just add another like layer to that offense. I think Nick Jordan is really going to grow into the similar path that we've seen Jake Forrester growing. So that'll be interesting to keep an eye out for.
1: Yeah. next question here uh, from the message board from Sonny Al. Question Do we understand that without a legit center, we're asking to be beaten inside every time we play? Sonny Al sounds like a frustrated fan. Yeah, we get that. That's a big part of what we're talking about here. I'm sure Aaron McKee is aware that they need more help in the paint. Uh, next question here comes
3: wait, 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 real quick, real quick, real quick, real quick. Chris Vaught is what, like 6'11 on Cincinnati? 6'10 maybe? Tall. Who out rebounded who in that game? Worth noting. Yeah. Worth noting.
1: Tim Cohn's setting us straight, setting me straight before I try to jet on to the next question. Not to
3: say, and that's that's not to say they need to improve their rebound. There's still a lot to improve there, but it's just at least worth noting that if everybody's involved in boxing out and attacking the glass, they can out rebound teams. Oh, it's like Houston.
1: I mean, look at how Houston does it. They exactly. You don't do it with a pair of yeah. like seven footers. So, absolutely. It doesn't
3: necessarily come down to a legit center. Jake Forster yeah. very much helps keeping them on the floor. Having a legit center helps, but they can rebound the ball well if they, you know, choose to.
2: Absolutely. I've heard someone say that, that, uh, rebounding is a team skill, not, not necessarily an individual skill, which kind of, you know, makes sense there.
1: Yep. Sam Cohen giving Vroon the, the thumbs up all the way from one end of the turnpike to the other, from Philly to Pittsburgh, the virtual thumbs up. Uh, next question here from DBlaze 75 is the screen name. And a lot of this ties into what we've been talking about already. Question number one, any thoughts on whether JP and Dre come back next year or leave i would imagine less playing time for both next year if they stay again speculative stuff uh you know if you're asking me again total guess i don't know maybe one of them comes back we, we just we don't know understand why it's on people's minds but again yeah you're adding sage tolbert into the mix you're adding jaleel white into into the mix again he's a a guy who can play with the, with the ball in his hands, but he can play kind of one through four, maybe guard almost, you know, at least all four positions or four of those five positions on the floor. Uh, You have to see how things go. Um, I would guess that maybe one of the two comes back, maybe, maybe JP, but again, I don't have any inside knowledge on that just yet. You know, um, it's something that we'll obviously talk to Aaron about after the season you guys have any thoughts on this one again this is a two-parter from d blaze but the first question again involves uh whether jp and dre come back
3: i can take it we uh we had had this conversation in our group chat separately just about like what we think is potentially gonna happen and again we have no inside knowledge of whether or not either of them are choosing to come back they both have the ability to lose an eligibility for a year but if i were to guess i would say they bring back one and not the other john as you mentioned and i i adamantly think you can make the argument for either I think both could be good additions to the team next year I think just numbers wise it's going to be really hard to keep both especially with like guys taking a step forward bringing back someone like Sage Tolbert Jaleel White getting into the mix I think it's gonna be really hard for them to play the amount of minutes they're playing now next year so I think you you can make the argument that one will come back and not the other and I think you can make the argument either way that Aaron McKee would be happy to have either of them back
1: uh, second part of D 75's question is temple's best option to get a big through the transfer portal seems incredibly hard these days to get a five or someone even a four as a high school signee. Yeah. I think we can all agree again, aligns with what we're talking about. Um, you know, and again, we'll see what shakes loose in the spring. You know, maybe they do get a, a big from, from the area, or I, I can't really think of who off the top of my head, or maybe they do have their eyes on someone nationally, but I would be surprised If they don't address size, you know, through the transfer portal again, like, you know, Aaron realizes that he is rebuilding and retooling, but he doesn't want to be doing it forever, you know, and there's like, you know, there's that variation, I'm probably butchering this, this cliche, but it's like, you know, get old, stay old, you know, Um, you know, they, they want experience, they want someone who can come in and, and make an impact right away, I'd be surprised if they take a project big from a high school you know, in the late signing period. So again, I would, I would agree with the, the sentiment there. Um, next question here. Eric Dixon is not getting any playing time at Villanova. Could you see him fitting in as a transfer? If he goes that, uh, that route, was Temple involved much in high school? I'm sure Temple tried recruiting him. Eric Dixon, I think was, was a, a Villanova lean for, you know, quite a long time. Can't say we really like intimately covered his recruitment. Um, I, I think what, what, The transfer portal is doing to the fan base, which I understand is, you know, people are looking around and they're looking at box scores and saying, who's not playing, who might not, you know, who might be unhappy. And again, I think from the time that like someone, and I'm getting this back to Eric Dixon in a second, but from the time that Ty, uh, uh, Tosh Tweet, excuse me, committed to West Virginia, you know, there are some people out there saying, well, he'll be home in a year. He'll be home in two years. And I'd be like, well, we'll see. You know, maybe he sits out his freshman year. Maybe he plays sparingly his freshman year. Maybe he does decide to come home. Nobody knows the answer to that other than Tosh Sweet. I don't know. Again, we don't cover Nova. I Esther Boyer, I would say that I wouldn't necessarily look at Eric Dixon's playing time and uh, automatically assume that because he's not playing right now would mean that he's ready to bolt Villanova. Again, have I talked to Eric Dixon? No, have I talked to Jay Wright? No, we don't cover Nova, but... I I think you're dealing with a little bit of a different beast there. You got to remember that he's playing for a program that's won a couple of national championships. He's seen some guys develop, you know, don't forget Jay's not, you know, most of you listening to this podcast. know Jay's not doing this with a lot of one and dones, you know, guys have kind of, you know, you know, developed over time. So I don't know that Eric Dixon would be just looking to bowl. I wouldn't necessarily be looking at box scores and assuming that he's leaving. But again, I also acknowledge that I don't know what I don't know, but I'm not, I don't have any knowledge of him just looking to, looking to transfer. Now, of, of course, if he was looking to transfer, would Temple be interested? You know, probably, but we'll see. But I think this is what a lot of our mailbag questions are going to be like over the next several, several weeks with uh, scouring the transfer market. You guys have any, any thoughts on this one? Nothing to add?
2: I, I, yeah, I, I do. It. Sorry, John.
1: You go, Brent. Go ahead.
2: I was gonna say I'm. I mean, it was the same thing. I was actually uh, I'd seen a Facebook post about this earlier in the day, and I was talking with uh, a couple buddies of mine, and I was like, I basically said the same thing you did. But the only thing I will add is that Demir Cosby Roundtree is sitting out this year. I think due to a leg injury. Yeah. And he would be coming back. Um, they'll probably lose Jeremiah Robinson Earl. Um. So you know, maybe you know he kind of sees that. Um. He's going to be sitting another year behind Cosby Roundtree. You know. Does that play into it? Like you said, who knows, but you know, it's not like he's sliding into a, he might not be sliding into a spot next year.
1: Yeah. Again, it's like I said, I mean, and that's, that's, you know, a good thing to think about Varun. I mean, it's going to comprise a lot of our coverage now in terms of like speculating again, we've talked obviously about how the transfer portal has affected college football and it certainly, certainly has. and, And Temple has certainly borne the brunt of it. We'll see how it affects, you know, things in the spring, but something to keep an eye on. It would be an interesting local story to say the least, but you know, something to keep an eye on. Again, my my guess, my educated guess would be that he doesn't go anywhere. But again, Broome gives us some good th- uh, food for thought there. Uh, got a question via Twitter, and I think that's it after this one, guys, right? Um, Detroit Owl, will Ty Strickland be an owl next year? Again, another transfer-related question. I get it. I see the, I see the thought process there again to I'm trying to be as literal as possible. We have not talked to Ty Strickland about this. I think he's a, a heck of a human being. I think he's a great guy. He's got some talent, but yeah, he's not, not seeing any minutes right now. You look at how Jeremiah Williams has played uh, Caleb battles getting minutes. Uh, then when you look ahead and you think of, again, adding in Jaleel white, then you look at Hasir Miller and what he's doing at Newman Greti right now. Um, You can have this debate. There are a lot of good guards in the city. Sir Miller is playing as well as anybody in Philadelphia right now. uh, Posted a triple-double against Archbishop Wood, a team that's got a few D1 players on it uh, between Marcus Randolph and, of course, uh, Rizul Diggins. I can see where people might connect the dots there. We'll have to see. I'm sure it's a popular thought. Don't know yet. What do you guys think of this one?
3: I think it's hard to say whether or not it's hard it's blatantly it's hard to say whether or not he'll be on the roster next year it's hard to say whether he'll be playing I think from an outsider's, I think if you're looking at it from an outsider's perspective you have to keep in mind that he was their guy up until he had shoulder surgery
4: mm-hmm.
3: and when you watch his his minutes that he got sparingly through the first couple of games of the season it's noteworthy that he did just about everything well except for his shot release he couldn't find the bottom of the net he had a handful of really nice moves with the ball in his hands. He had a handful of nice decisions. Was he a perfect guard? No, but I mean, who is after not playing for a while? After coming back from um, surgery or not having played in a live game in over a year. So I think it's at least worth noting that the shoulder surgery probably did something to his jump shot. How much you read into that, I have no idea, but I think it's at least worth noting that like, he had a couple really nice defensive possessions. He had a couple of really nice moves. He just wasn't able to put the ball in the hole. And when you can't do that, obviously, you're not going to be able to get time on the floor.
0: It's also worth mentioning as, as Sam has pointed out to us is he was not dressed to play at Wichita State. so I mean that, I mean that's definitely something we can ask Aaron about uh, next time we get to talk to him but um maybe maybe there's something going on there we just we just don't know and I think it, it would be premature for us to, to guess whether or not he'd be on the team but if you're looking at maybe somebody who who has seen you know could see their minutes dwindle even further with with the addition of his Sear Miller that it would be him.
1: Yeah, I just hate chasing a guy before he's gone. And, and again, we, we talked to Ty last year for our podcast. And uh, again, great guy to talk to. And again, he's he's got some ability. He was good enough to get a scholarship at Wisconsin. We'll just have to see. Again, I get, I get why people are connecting the dots there. And again, it's it's a new era of covering college hoops because if you're Temple, you also have to guard against who's looking to pluck guys from from you know from our roster as well. But I, I get why that's a name certainly keep an eye on it, but don't want to jump to any conclusions just yet. Um, thanks to everyone uh, for the mailbag questions. Again, uh, some great stuff from, uh, from Varun's story from Ron and Varun, you, you had something else you wanted to add about that, that conversation real quick before we signed off here.
2: Uh, I was, I was going to say like, um, kind of going off what, what Sam had said, like it was such a um, different kind of answer that mm-hmm. um, Ron had given. Um, just based off like the context, you know, he looked at it from more of a macro perspective rather than, you know, the individual micro perspective that, you know, a lot of guys what they had done for themselves. And I, I get why people would answer in, in that way. Right. But Ron has always been um, someone that's like a student of the game, kind of like mm-hmm. always loves his history and something like he had mentioned to me um, when, when we were talking, is that one of the biggest um Ways that he kind of bonded with John Cheney was that he would always try to get his hands on watching old games and um, talking about people like Sam Jones and Elgin Baylor and you know John Cheney was really impressed with like how you know someone going to school in the late '90s, early 2000s is talking about guys from John Cheney's era in the '60s. Um, so like just giving historical context with things like that. Um, in, in viewing his life. Like I, I, I was doing the same thing too when I was on my way back to Philly for the viewing. Um, and thinking about like the great, you know just with the great migration with um, the way uh, black people moved from the South, you know, John Chaney's story is as ordinary and typical of people at that time. Um, and you know, I, we know for his extraordinary career that he ended up having, but it had been such a such a typical experience for um, a Black kid moving from Jacksonville, Florida in, in the second wave of the Great Migration coming from an urban area. That's uh, a lot of the um, movement had come from urban areas in the South in that second, in that second phase and coming straight North. Um, that's why a lot of uh, people coming from the Atlantic coast moved up um, to Philadelphia and Baltimore and stuff and you know, giving historical context really explains why John Cheney was the way that he was um, more than anything. So yeah, I guess that's, that's what my uh, thoughts have been.
1: Yeah. Some really cool stuff there from Varun, a, a cool conversation. Again, it's just, it's been fun again, not, you know, sorry to do it under these circumstances, but again, I know it sounds, I'm sure it sounds cliche and tried at this point, but again, you just, every person you talk to, you realize, how much this guy impacted so many people. And again, I mean, there's, again, I would advise everybody strongly encourage everybody to check out all the stuff we've been doing, um, you know, from Tom's stuff to, to the Sam's here. And again, some, some cool stuff from Varun, some great commentary from Ron Rollerson. Again, we thank him for taking some time out to talk to us for that series. Happy to have Varun on this week, getting him, into the mix on the podcast uh thank you to all of you for listening and uh we'll have more for you next week have a great night a great weekend and we'll talk to you soon